you're staying with us, we are in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible is cut up into two major sections. The Old Testament, which is about the first three quarters of the Bible. And then uh, you move to the New Testament. And uh, 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians is about halfway into the New Testament, a letter written by the Apostle Paul for a specific church in a specific time, but because God's word is inspired, it is useful for us as well. So we're going to pray that the Lord God would use his word to teach us what is true. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that we could worship together this morning. For some, this morning it was hard It was hard. Uh, It's still right to say that you're king and that you're good. Um, Sometimes it's uh, easy to come in on a Sunday morning and worship you as good and beautiful uh, because we've seen your hand at work in our lives and we've had maybe a fresh understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross for us. And those are sweet days. And I hope that many had those this morning as they worshiped you. Uh, but some Sundays, Lord, we, we say in faith things that we know are true, but have a tough time seeing. And so we profess by faith that you are a good, good God. I and mean, you are gracious God who sent your one and only son to die for us, that whoever believes in you would have eternal life. And you're a good, good spirit who uh, gives life to the dead, brings order out of chaos, This morning as we come to your word, we believe this word was first inspired by the Holy Spirit for the people, and now the Spirit now gives understanding. So Lord, we look at a world that is is unstable and full of uh, wild ideas, and so we need need truth that will last, a foundation to build our lives on, and we believe that your word gives such things, and so we pray that we would believe in faith what we hear from your word, and then that uh, your spirit would also allow us to pl- apply these things to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Some of you are probably familiar with the name Eric Liddell. Um, Eric Liddell was immortalized in the movie Chariots of Fire, which won the Oscar for Best Motion Picture. And it talks about when Eric Liddell was competing in the 1924 Olympics. Uh, In particular, it highlights that because he was a Christian, he refused to uh, do a Uh, One of the Olympic trials on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, his best race, the 100-meter dash, and therefore he was not able to compete and didn't get the Olympic gold in that particular event that he probably would have had. You can see the movie and find out other things happened. What you may not know is that the same convictions that led Liddell not to run the 100-meter dash Olympic trial led him to not compete for the 1928 Olympics, but instead become a Christian missionary to the land of China. And during World War II, uh, when Japan uh, took over China, uh, Eric Liddell was put into a concentration camp with other British non-combatants. And uh, it was a pretty harsh reality, very difficult. But the biographer, Duncan Hamilton, describes Liddell's time in the concentration camp this way. Liddell rises before dawn and labors until a curfew at 10 p.m. Liddell is always doing something and always doing it 
for others rather than for himself. He scrambles for coal, which he carries in metal pails. He chops wood and totes, totes bulky flour sacks. He cooks in the kitchens. He cleans and sweeps. He repairs whatever needs fixing. He teaches science to the children and teenagers of the camp and coaches them in sports too. He counsels and consoles the adults who bring him their worries. Every Sunday he preaches in the church. Even when he works the hardest, Liddell still apologizes for not working hard enough. Liddell spent 18 months in that concentration camp, ultimately dying five months before the camp's liberation. Another prisoner wrote this regarding Eric's death. The entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. So here's my question for this morning. Was Eric Liddell's life and death a tragedy or a triumph? Was giving up the Olympic gold in the 100-meter dash noble or foolish? Was laying down his life in China breathtakingly beautiful or a misfortunate mistake from a religious wacko? The biblical passage before us today is very honest about the type of answer you should give to this question. In short, the Apostle Paul says that if Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, And if those who believe in Jesus do not resurrect as well, Eric Liddell's life was a tragic misfortune, pitiable and pathetic. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then those who believe in him will have a similar victory over death. And all such living is triumphant and glorious. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 12 through 34 because this is a longer section. I'm not going to read the whole thing and then come back. We're going to read it section by section. I want us to look at the passage in three sections that I think divide up pretty easily according to the text. Uh, Section number one, Paul talks about the tragedy of no resurrection. Section two, there is the train of triumph because of resurrection. And then section three, we'll close with some implications of the resurrection. Let me read to you verses 12 through 19. Paul writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, in fact, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
So notice that verse, verse 12 begins with this phrase, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is the natural follow-up from the first 10 verses that we looked at last week where Paul had said that the foundational message of Christianity, in fact, he called it of first importance, side note application, that means there are secondary matters in the church that we don't need to die on. Ones that we do die on, though, of first importance are that Jesus Christ lived, died according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. This is foundational Christianity. If we lose any of those key components, there is no Christianity. Those are things worth dying for. In fact, Paul would go on to do just that. But he notes that some are now saying there is no resurrection. We have a problem. Now we need to define resurrection because there are all kinds of bad ideas of what this word means and doesn't mean. Resurrection does not mean that when you die, you go to be an angel in heaven. I want to just let you guys all know right now, none of you will be angels. You start as humans, you die as humans, If you trust in Christ, you resurrect as humans. There's no getting halos. That is Hollywood, not the Bible. But what is actual resurrection? Here's just a quick definition that I'll give you, and you can just have it. Resurrection is the future and glorious restoration of human persons with a perfect physical and immortal body. That's what resurrection is. It's not about being a spirit floating in the clouds. It's about being a corporal person with an imperishable body. Come back next week. We're talking more about this body. Two Old Testament passages give some indication already in the Old Testament pointing forward to what Christ would do about the resurrection. One is found in the book of Job. Most of you are familiar with Job. Uh, Job uh, began his life um, (laughs) health and wealth. He was picture of health. His children were the picture of health. He had many of them. He was joy, joy, joy. Uh, But then through a series of uh, sovereign events, God allowed Satan to bring destruction into Job's family and then to his own person physically. But in the middle of this book, in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, Job in his pity, his sorrow, and his boils cries out in faith this, Job 19, verses 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another how my heart yearns within me. So observe Job's Job's faith. He believes there is a redeemer who will one day stand on a physical earth, physically. And at that time, Job believes that his existing skin will be no more. And yet he will, in his own flesh, with his own eyes, see his redeemer. Resurrection is the future and glorious restoration of human persons with a perfect physical and immortal body. Much later in the Old Testament, there's these two verses in Daniel 
Uh, Chapter 12, Daniel is a very prophetic book full of crazy images and metaphors. Um, About as clear as it gets is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, where we read this beginning about halfway into verse 1. Daniel records, there will be a time of distress such as not has happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, these verses indicate that there is this future physical awakening of people for an eternal future. Now, what's important to remember is that at the time of Jesus, um, this was a fairly common belief. There were a few doubters uh, called the Sadducees. They didn't believe in a future resurrection, but the Pharisees and uh, a lot of the faithful Jews of the first century believed there would be this future resurrection of many bodies all at once. The term, if you're looking it up in your systematic theology textbook, is the general revelation. This massive resurrection of people who had been in the dust physically, rise physically forever. Now, most Jews, though, only held to this general resurrection. Christianity comes on the scenes, and partly why it's so shocking and so maybe off-putting is these Christians, remember the foundational belief of Christianity? Jesus died, buried, rose again, all by himself. That was new. That was different. That was challenging. So Jews were like, just one? (laughs) What about everybody? But the Corinthians would have been primarily shaped by Greco-Roman thought. And unlike Jews who were looking for a physical resurrection, uh, the Greco-Romans, partly influenced by a guy named Plato, believed that things physical weren't that good. One of the major ideas of Plato or Platonism was that the physical is the shadow of what the real reality, which is spiritual. So many scholars think that this is probably why some in Corinth, after enough time, were like, he, does, they don't, he doesn't mean real resurrection. He's talk, they're talking about some sort of spiritual thing. Like with Plato, eventually we get rid of these bodies and we're just spirits. If, you know, we talked a little bit about last week, uh, the spiritual uh, emphasis and fascination in the church of Corinth was very widespread. They thought that because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, marked by speaking in tongues and a manner of all these other uh, amazing events, miraculous things going around, that they had experienced the good life then or the future life then in total. And so they were just kind of waiting for things to get better where they get rid of the bodies and it's all spiritual all the time. Uh, no, no scholar is exactly for sure what belief or driving belief kept them from denying the resurrection, but we know from verse uh, 12 here that some were. They're denying it. They're saying it's, it didn't happen or it's not going to happen. Maybe they were redefining what happened to Jesus on the third day. All the same, Paul says, if that's true, it's a tragedy. In fact, he gives six tragic consequences if there is no resurrection. And we're going to fly through these. So look at these things in the Bible because I'm moving quickly. Number one, first, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus did not raise. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
There's no resurrection. If bodies don't come alive, Jesus' body is still decaying in the grave. Jesus' body is worm food. Jesus' body is still in the earth and by now decomposed into nothing. That would be tragic. Second tragedy, if there is no resurrection, all Christian preaching is useless and the faith of Christians is useless. Verse 14, and if, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In effect, Paul is saying, we have nothing to preach and nothing worth believing if there is no resurrection. Christianity is about a restored, physical, eternal, and glorious future or it's unnecessary to even consider. Third, if there is no resurrection, all the early Christian witnesses and leaders are outright liars. Verses 14, or excuse me, 15 and 16 say this. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If the resurrection did not happen, Peter is a liar. Mary Magdalene, liar. Mary, the mother of Jesus, liar. James, the brother of Jesus, liar. The writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, liars. The apostle Paul, a false witness, guilty of perjury, should be held in contempt of court, contempt in society, and contempt of history. We shouldn't honor such people, make paintings of them, and go look at such paintings of them in famous museums around the world if they're liars. The fourth tragedy of a resurrectionless reality is faith in Christ would still keep people in their sins. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Jesus is still rotting in the grave, then his death on the cross was a farce. It did nothing, accomplished nothing. He's just a failed martyr. He died, and we will still die too. We're still in the guilt of our sin. He may have said he was dying as a sacrifice for our sins, but if he's not vindicated on the third day, then we have nothing to celebrate. We're still condemned. We're worthy of death and destined for judgment. Fifth, if there is not a resurrection of the dead, then all the Christians who have died are simply rotting away and gone from us forever. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That means those who have died in faith as Christians, they're gone. They're perished. They are dead, destroyed, not coming back and not going anywhere. We can't tell our children that Aunt Patty is in a better place. We have to say Aunt, P- Aunt Patty is no more. She's lost to us. You'll never see her again. Deal with it, kid. Six, if there is no resurrection of the dead, Christians deserve to be pitied. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all the people most to be pitied. Every now and again, um, someone might say to me, and probably someone will say to you, Matt, if Christianity works for you, great. I'm glad it makes you happy. Paul is saying, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we're living a dumb life. 
a pitiable, pathetic life. All the martyrs who died for Jesus are fools. Eric Liddell was conned. Those who give away money to churches are suckers. Those who lose friendships for speaking Jesus Christ are morons. Those who study the Bible are idiots, and those who pray have been duped if Christ has not been raised from the dead. It's utter tragedy if there is no resurrection. Now, where would we have evidence of such a thing as resurrection? Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. It's emphatic. Up from the grave he arose. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now the term first fruits refers to the initial taking in of a harvest. Still today, you can harvest a few dozen acres, do a few studies, and determine very quickly the sort of yield for the rest of the harvest. In the Old Testament, the Jews would give a portion of the first harvest to God as a sacrifice. It, that little sacrifice, was this solemn pledge to God that not only was that that portion for God's use, but it was an act of consecration of their whole field and their whole lives We're God's. This little bit, it's for you because all of it's yours. It's a pledge. What Paul is saying here is Jesus, Jesus is God's pledge to us that the resurrection is sure and that a large harvest of resurrected bodies is to come. Indeed, Jesus rose from the dead. He's the first fruits. You know, Iowans would, you know, they like, uh, what is it, 200 bushel corn, 250 bushel corn. Like, we're talking 1,000 bushel corn. Like, this is really good. Jesus rose from the dead. And your resurrection will be like that. That kind of body. That kind of resurrection. With that kind of power. So this leads us to section two. The train, I'm using choo-choo, the train of triumph Because of the resurrection. Verses 20 through 28 are God's timeline for the resurrection. It starts with Jesus, proceeds toward the future where there is a general resurrection, and then it goes even beyond that. So I want you to listen to verses 20 through 28. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So he's got this long list. The beginning's easy. Adam was, begins the show. Adam was the first man but he was also the first man to die. He died because he sinned and rebelled against God. 
And this sin and this death is like an illness that, that when it began in Adam, he just passed it on from one human to the next. I'm probably one of the few people who did this, but late, I, I eventually read that Martin Luther did it to his kid too. When my first child was born, I said, look, a sinner. I felt bit good that I heard that Luther did that too. That's what we produce, and that's what we are. And the judgment for sin is death. And so it says here that all who are connected to Adam, if that's the only source of life we have, we are dead men and dead women. Condemned. Now, it's very common for people to say, and it's not quite inaccurate, but we'll say something like, we're saved by Jesus by the death on the cross. But here's the thing. The cross alone is not enough. There has to be a resurrection with the death for the death to have merit. There was a scholar from years ago named P.T. Forsyth, and he put it this way. The cross alone is no solution without the solution for the cross itself, the resurrection, and all its train beyond Christ's death. If Jesus died on the cross and didn't raise from the dead, we'd have no hope that our sins had actually been forgiven. We might think they'd been forgiven. We might hope they'd been forgiven. But the resurrection says, vindicated, they have been forgiven. Triumph, they have been forgiven. If you struggle in the guilt of your sin, it's common for people to say, meditate on the cross because God loves you. I'm going to encourage you this week, meditate on the resurrection. Forgiveness is secured and is extended to you The resurrection says Jesus' death mattered for you. So meditate on the resurrection when you wonder if your sins have been forgiven. He's still alive. Friends, Jesus' resurrection is the game changer. When Jesus resurrected, he made it possible for people to no longer find their primary connection to Adam but with Jesus Christ. If you could put it this way, before you give your life to Jesus, your last name is Adamson, Adam daughter, son of Adam, daughter of Adam. That's your last name. That's your surname. That goes with you everywhere you go. That's your primary identity. When you were born sinner, Adamson, Adam daughter. But in Christ, you get a new name a new identity, a new family. You move out of Adam's son, Adam's daughter into Christ's son or Messiah's son, son of Messiah, daughter, well, sorry, son of God, daughter of God, brother of Messiah Jesus, your elder brother who died for you. That's the kind of transformation that occurs. That's what uh, Paul is saying in verses 21 and 22 when he says, for since death came through a man, Adam, The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. In Adam all die, but in Christ we will be made alive. Then in verse 23, it starts speaking of these train cars of certainty for for all who believe in Jesus Christ. So train cars of certainty. Verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So train car number one, hey kids, are you listening? What's on the front of a train? The engine. This is the engine powering this whole series of events. 
Train car number one, the engine is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It powers this train of history and certainty. Train car number two, people in this life come to belong to him by faith. Train car number three, Jesus returns to reign as king and resurrect his people. Train car number four, Christians live with Jesus with resurrected bodies. Notice that the only part that actually involves us is the choice we have on whether we belong to Christ or not. All the other train cars of certainty are moving. Notice the train has more to it than that because in verse 24 it says, Then the end will come. When he, that's the Son of God, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. This is Paul's indication that Jesus' resurrection has ensured that one day Jesus will return in glorious power to bring to destruction all the powers of evil. God, here's the thing, this is important. God created a beautiful perfect and glorious earth in the beginning, and he loved it. He reveled it. This is good. This is very good. And then he said, and we're taking a whole day off tomorrow to just celebrate what we just did here. But sin, Satan, and death have corrupted and polluted this world that God created. And Jesus is not completely successful until this world is fully eradicated of sin, Satan, and death, and all things reconnected to their creator. And Jesus' resurrection starts the engine. Choo-choo, this is gonna happen. That's the power of the resurrection. Paul closes this section with some great words of hope. Verse 25, it says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus is reigning now. He exists now to crush enemies. On the cross, he's crushed. He will never be crushed again. I want you to know this for your sake and mine. Jesus reigns now to crush the enemies in your life. Right? So... You struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. He wants to crush that stuff. And he's given you the power through the Holy Spirit to say, this is possible. He wants to crush the ugly ways you treat your husband and wife. He wants to crush it. It's death. It's not what God wants. It's not beautiful. He reigns to bring all those enemies under his feet. The way that teenagers sometimes treat teenagers, the way sometimes parents treat teenagers and teenagers treat parents, he wants to crush that, make something more beautiful. I don't watch sitcoms anymore because it's full of lies. You don't have to fight with your mom and dad. You don't have to have a broken home. That's just not, that's what Jesus came to crush. He must reign now until all the enemies are under his feet. The enemies are raging, but Jesus is bigger. He's this engine of power. We can't get our minds around the power. In fact, there's like two or three times in the other epistles of Paul, he says, I pray that you would understand the power. Like that's how much, you know, he says it here, he says it here, he says it here, because we need 
some God-given wisdom to fathom the power and the love of this enemy-crushing king who is reigning in glory now. And he's gonna come and finish the work. Jesus will not stop till all things are made right, until all who will repent have bowed the knee. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. He's giving us opportunity to repent, to come into his family, to belong to him. But there will be an end. That's important to know for those who are still considering the claims of who Jesus is and trying to decide if you're going to give your life to him. There is a clock and it's ticking. There will be an end. Verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this doesn't include God who put everything under Christ. But when he has done this, when he's crushed death, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. There was a famous poet by the name of John Donne who was born in 1570, 1572, and he starts a poem he wrote this way. Death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. Death has no reason to be proud. It ain't that mighty. It's already been crushed. It will be fully crushed in time to come. And then John Donne closes the poem with these words. Oh, short sleep, past we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. I love that. Death will die. There is a death of death through the death of the Son. One day death will be destroyed, earth will be restored, and then Jesus will turn to his Father in heaven and say something like this. He'll say, Dad. I can almost see, he's almost like a tour guy. Dad, it's all right now. It's all good now. What had been lost, it's all been restored. It's all been redeemed. You are a good God of a good creation, and it's now just the way you want it. The people are made well. They are resurrected with these bodies that will never die. Oh, Dad, it's all yours again. If there is no resurrection, all we have is tragedy, hopelessness, gloom, and death. But Jesus rose, and therefore we have the promise of this train of triumph. But Paul doesn't end this section just yet because he has to get into our business. So let's look at some of the implications found in verses 29 through 34. Uh, Paul writes this. Now, if there is no resurrection, uh, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beats in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this, I say this to your shame. A couple of thoughts, implications. Uh, the first one comes from verse 29. It's the idea that religion suggests resurrection is true. 
Then the next section is sacrifice has value because of the resurrection. And then finally, ethics should flow because of the resurrection. So first off, all religious endeavors and religions, they show that we want something more than this. Now, I don't have time to explain how confusing verse 29 really is. Know that there are at least 40 different scholarly ideas on what in the world it means that people were baptized for the dead. We don't know for sure. It seems that some of the Corinthians, for some reason, after their loved one had passed away, got baptized for them. In no way does Paul condone this. He just makes mention of it. They're doing it. Why does that matter? Well, he's just showing, hey, you know how you're denying that resurrection? Why are you doing this baptism thing? It's like you, you realize that this body needs to be washed and cleansed and that this body ain't right and that this body wants to be raised to something new. Why are you doing that for dead people if you don't believe in the resurrection? And here's the thing, all kind of religious, um, well, let's, let's just put it this way. Um, it's rare that you go to a funeral that people don't all of a sudden become really religious. I think this is what Paul's doing. Like you go to a funeral Tom, who hated God and said he didn't have time for church, all of a sudden's fishing in heaven, and that's why you put a fishing pole in his casket. Why do we do that if there is no resurrection? Why do we put pictures of loved ones? Why did King Tut bury himself with all this treasure? There's something about when people die, we do things that say, I hope that that's not the end. In a somewhat Christianized Corinthian city, they did this weird thing that is not to be condoned, despite, and even though Mormons do this now, I don't know if you knew this, they get it from this one verse. But Paul's not condoning, he's just saying, hey, when dead people die, you know that you don't want them to stay dead, so you do something. So religion is this cry for something more, something beyond. There there is something in the human chest that says there isn't much of a future if there isn't a bodily existence. That's all I'm going to say in verse 29. (laughs) But next, Paul expresses the conviction that the resurrection gives value to to sacrifice for the sake of Christ. Notice there is a transition in in pronouns. They do this weird baptism for the dead thing. But he says, but what about us? We, he's talking about uh, an apostle, an early Christian follower of Jesus. What do we do? He says, we face death all day long. We go into cities where people hate us and throw rocks at us. We labor to name Jesus in places where he hasn't been named at the risk of our reputation in our very lives. And he says very honestly um, at the end of verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If this is all there is, why would anyone take a rock for Jesus? Why would someone give up the gold and the 100-meter dash? Why would they not compete again for the Olympics and go to China? But because there is a resurrection, one of the implications for us is sacrifice is worth it. There is a reason to say no to stuff now because there is stuff, matter, physical pleasures and glory later. You never give up anything on this side of death that you won't get in the new world tenfold and it'll still be physical. It'll still be corporal. It'll still be wow. 
Let me tell you something that isn't true. You only live once. Not true. Not true. Does anyone actually believe he who dies with the most toys wins? No. No. A lot of the most decent people I know don't have a lot of the toys that a lot of the indecent people I know do have. In fact, as a parent, I sometimes say, no, I'm not getting you toys because I want you to be a nice person. Here's a stick. (laughs) It's now a gun or a bat or binoculars. Three things you're not getting for Christmas. Right? We, we, We know this, that these sacrifices are worth it. I love how N.T. Wright, former Anglican Bishop of Durham, he describes how every sacrifice has merit if there is a resurrection to come. This is a long quote. You get a little piece of it on the PowerPoint. N.T. Wright says, every act of love, every act of gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute, spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures and of course every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. And then he leaves these pointed remarks for the end. A lot of preachers begin mean and sad and then end happy. Not Paul today. He goes for the jugular. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And then the verse right before it said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Many of you know that that's a lyric from a famous poet in that time period. Here's the thing. What is written by the poets and the musicians of your day speaks to the heart of our culture. I got two pina coladas, one for each hand. Right? The, you, people listen to certain ideas in poetry and in song or of philosophers, and if you embrace it, it will affect your character. If you're listening to songs that speak negatively about a female person or another race, it is sin and wrong. It will affect you. It will change you. It will make you an awful person. If you have any music that denigrates a human person, you should throw it away. But similar idea, if you're listening to ideas that aren't true and right and beautiful and glorious about the reality of a coming resurrection, it will, in fact, impact your life. The reason many of us live selfish, self-indulgent lives is we have no eye for a future resurrection. We might half-heartedly express belief in a resurrected Jesus and future resurrected bodies, but it doesn't look like it. 
We do whatever we want with our bodies with no regard to these bodies being owned by God and purchased by the blood of Jesus. If we truly knew God, we would act like it. That's the point in verse 34. Come back to your senses as you are and stop seeing, for there are some who are ignorant. They don't know God. If you know God, it'll change your ethics. It'll change your life. It'll change your soul. Friends, there is a future resurrection. And those who belong to Christ will experience this. And every single sacrifice for the sake of Jesus will be worth it. And so Paul says, turn from your selfishness and sin. Come to your senses. Feel, feel the, emo- the appropriate amount of pain and shame for living for this world only. He was, Paul was willing to shame his listeners so that they would live differently, that they would live the enduring, glorious life. Now, he's willing to, I'm willing to let you feel shame right now in this moment so that you turn to the grace and the power and the glory that has been purchased by Jesus' blood on the cross and vindicated by his resurrection. Religion suggests resurrection. Sacrifice has value because of the resurrection. But our, there should be ethics that flow from the re- resurrection. Godliness. Godliness. So as many of you know, On February 25th, 2018, a college basketball kid from Marion, Iowa, did something a bit uncommon. Jordan Bohannon of Marion, Iowa, was shooting free throws for the Iowa Hawkeyes against the Northwestern Wildcats. He had made 34 free throws in a row over a number of basketball games. If he made this single free throw, he would beat a team record going back 25 years. A record held by a man from my hometown, Chris Street. His sister Betsy graduated in my class But Chris Street's record didn't end because he missed a free throw. It ended because on January 19th, 1993, his car and a snowplow met. So what did Jordan do on February 25th this year? He intentionally missed the free throw. Later, when asked why, Jordan said, that's not my record to have. The record deserves to stay in his name. Life is more than basketball. Now, I know nothing about the spiritual condition of Jordan Bohannon, but I do know this. He's right. Life is more than basketball. There is a greater life to come. All sacrifices are worth it. All efforts will be rewarded. Earthly records mean nothing. And so Christians, here's the thing. Christians are not to be pitied. The dumbest thing we could do would be to live for this life. It's glorious to sacrifice. Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and, let, and yet forfeit his soul? And so what does he say? Give up your life and you get your soul in spades in eternity without question and it'll never end. Friends, believe the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, you are good Why, that you would love us enough to send your son that we could share in his death and his resurrection. It's, there, there, there aren't enough words. And I've tried. That was a long sermon. Um, We want to worship you for who you are. Lord, I pray that this week, if someone is doubting their forgiveness, they would look to the resurrected Christ who has assured that those who trust in him will be saved. Those who are stuck in a, a sin or a struggle, they can't get about. I pray that they would realize that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is now in them. 
and therefore they can triumph over what is ever struggling them. And Jesus is reigning in heaven to bring that enemy under his feet. But I also pray for us as we go out this week, Lord, I pray that we would make valiant sacrifices for the name of Jesus. We'd risk reputation, we'd risk lives. We would sacrifice money and time and treasure and talent and everything that we'd be willing to give up everything that this life would hold dear because this is not the only life. There's one to come. There's one to come. And that's the good news that we preach today and we're gonna preach it again next week. Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Glory to God, amen.